Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. All right, it's time to enter the football time machine that we own in this bedroom here and go back to the decade that we haphazardly label the noughties, the 2000s, and to the football of its time. I'm Jake from What If Football and this is the 57th episode of the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast here on the Sports Social Podcast Network where we'll be residing three days a week, as always, with ranked not it's nostalgia here today and the return of the Barclays on Friday with the second ever Premier League season stick around for that one also if you are enjoying podcasts like these head over to our Patreon page and join the team from just £1 a month you get five bonus podcasts a week I think that's fairly good value you get a podcast for about 6p or there or thereabouts my maths isn't great but anyway the 57th episode of the Notice Nostalgia podcast will be looking at England's greatest midfielder not to win the World Cup. So basically, England's best midfielder outside of Bobby Charlton. And without further ado, let's get stuck straight in. We'll start with a few joke answers because we've got a couple of comedians on the Twitter feed. The Twitter feed that being uh, at what if underscore YouTube. If you have any other suggestions for noise nostalgia topics, any what if scenarios you want answering on uh, our Patreon mailbag or on the old YouTube channel there, feel free to get involved. So Fumarama says Lee Catamol can't, can't complain with that. Zero caps for England. Absolute beast of a midfielder. Loved a yellow card, loved a red card. Ray Wilkins got a lot of uh, flack for his sending off, didn't he, in the 1986 World Cup? Because um, then, obviously, red cards weren't as, weren't as common. Um, Lee Catamull would be uh, lambasted in his time if he'd have got into the 86 because it'd have just been sent off every other game. Fantastic player. Um, just not at the level, unfortunately. And uh, Rigobert Bong, fantastic name um, there. Rigobert Song, get it? Rigobert Bong. He says Carlton Palmer um, from the early 90s fame. And yeah, what a fantastic midfielder he was. But unfortunately, not at the uh, the level we're going to be discussing today. Um, also, 
Um, I'm not going to try and launch this into a um, the tired old Skulls Lampard Gerard debate, but all I am doing because those are the main <laughs> main midfielders that we'll be discussing, and others, of course, because England have had other midfielders. Would you believe? Um, over the course of well, since 1860s, when uh, 1870s rather, when England played their first match against Scotland, I'm, I'm sure you can all remember the midfielders who played that day. Um, anyway, Sean Middleton also says, um, how do we not win ever- anything with these in the team? I put up a picture of England's wall in the uh, year of 2004 championship scores, Lampard, Gerrard, Beckham, Ferdinand. Um, yeah, um, well, you could delve into that. You could say Sven Goran Eriksson and his tactics, not trying to uh, shift away from a 4-4-2, which he was deep rooted in with, obviously, that uh, tactical style popular in England as well, but also popular in Scandinavia where um, they took a lot of English football cultures and tactics and styles and obviously transplanted onto their own football and Sven no stranger to the 4-4-2, unfortunately, shifted Paul Scholes out to the left, which in my opinion was the reason why England didn't win the Euro 2004 Championships, but we've all been there down that road before, haven't we? Um, also, in recent interviews with Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard and Stephen Gerrard, they've all said club rivalries, which is no real excuse really, because considering England got to Euro 2020's final, um, let's not forget 2018's World Cup, we've got players in there like Phil Foden, plays for Manchester City, Raheem Sterling plays for Manchester City, also you've got Liverpool defenders, Liverpool midfielders, also Chelsea, Man United, all competing for titles, Champions Leagues, maybe not Man United so much, but uh, the other two, the other three teams in there, obviously you can add Jack Grealish in there, Harry Kane, potentially Man City player soon, so club rivalries, I think that's not a good enough excuse for me, um, perhaps it's the mood in the camp, I think, I think that translated to a lot of England's ills in the 2010 World Cup. Um, being locked up in pretty much was a, uh, a jail by Fabio Capello in the north of South Africa there in Rustenburg. Um, probably played a big part in their mental health. Michael Carrick, who we won't mention today, but um, he stated that he hated every minute of the 2010 World Cup, which should have been one of his uh, greatest few weeks in a tournament which another player Michael Carrick Owen Hargreaves you can add to the list of midfielders that have often been overlooked in favour of just cramming as many of the best players in England rather than picking players suited to the system so for example in 2006 Owen Hargreaves did play but it was necessitated by injury suspension Wayne Rooney's red card against Portugal Michael Owen's injury David Beckham's injury as well um, towards the end of that tournament and he was the only reason why um, England got to the penalty shootout in the first place in that game. Maybe it was a little too late for Sven. Of course it was. It was his final game, wasn't it? Um, and I think players like Owen Hargreaves, Michael Carrick, uh, now would have been utilised by much smarter backroom staff, much smarter managers who pick um, systems rather than players. So nowadays you wouldn't have Paul Scholes on the left. You wouldn't have Emil Heskey playing left midfield in a 4-4-2 um, which is what Sven Goran Eriksson did in the 2002 World Cup um, when Joe Cole was uh, quite young and fearless and right there um, playing in the Premier League, which is uh, always bizarre to me. But um, I think England's finally evolved tactically. Um, all of these midfielders, though, were of that generation where the main midfielders we'll be discussing today, and you know the three already, <laughs> in a generation where England were tactically primitive were shoehorning plays in based on 
not form, but stature. So Paul Scholes has said quite a few, quite often, really, that he was um, often picked not on form and just purely because he was one of the better midfielders in the country, which isn't really the right thing to do, is it? We see now, I'm recording this before the uh, October Internationals, but the October Internationals just gone. And the likes of Mason Greenwood and Jude Bellingham given a rest, despite obviously two of the most informed England players this season, I'd argue. Jude Bellingham's been tearing it up for Dortmund, both in the Bundesliga and in the uh, Champions League. Mason Greenwood has been scoring hatfuls of goals for United as well. But it's just managing those minutes in a much smarter sort of setup structure by Gareth Southgate in England at the minute. And um, perhaps we're England are getting to a point now, perhaps since the only like, real occasion since 66 and the Sven era of having great players in Obviously, in 66, you have a tactical style, which the wingless wonders, which obviously worked wonders because England won the World Cup. With Sven-Goran Eriksson's team, you had the players, you didn't have the system. Now, England are working towards, they've got multiple systems, they've got multiple plans. They've also now got the players, um, which is obviously exciting times for England. Obviously, two of those superstars, Bellingham and uh, Bellingham and Mason Greenwood. Greenwood's just turned 20, so very, very young. Bellingham still, obviously, <laughs> barely an adult. I don't even know if he is an adult. I think he's just turned 18. Ridiculous. And many, many more, of course. Uh, but let's get straight into it. England's best ever midfielder. Um, we've got a few suggestions for Steven Gerrard first from James FF, who I know is a huge Liverpool fan. you got Joe Dean Pope and Mossman 800, Dean says, all-round great midfielder who should have won everything. Scores is a close second and Paul Gascoigne was just before my time, of course. So, Stephen Gerrard, 114 caps for England, which makes him one of the most tenured England players, but only behind the likes of David Beckham, Wayne Rooney, um, Peter Shilton in there as well. It's got 21 goals, which is a fair amount. I think he must be in the top 10 or there or thereabouts anyway, which is fantastic for a midfielder. Um, only dwarfed by um, Frank Lampard, I think, in midfield, but uh, we'll get on to him soon, won't we? Um, so, Stephen Gerrard made his debut just before the European Championships in 2000, made the squad. Um, fairly surprisingly, he was just getting going at Liverpool, wasn't he, around that time? Um, only came off the bench against Germany, he's probably number 23 in that team, in all fairness, really. But when you consider the uh, the likes of Dennis Wise in that midfield at that tournament, Stephen Gerrard probably would have, probably would have, probably should have. Um, Featured a lot more. Um, obviously, England bow out at the group stages, of course, with a loss against Romania. Um, but uh, that's by the by. And you think, right, Stephen Gerrard's going to um, obviously wins the treble with the treble, a treble with Liverpool. The uh, League Cup, the FA Cup, and the UEFA Cup in 2001 has an absolutely fantastic season alongside the likes of. Michael Owen, who wins the Ballon d'Or in 2001, let's not forget. And in 2001, Steven Gerrard scores his first England goal, um, an absolute superb goal against Germany. And of course, that 5-1 match um, in Munich in September 2001. And he was fully expected. He was one of the, well, not one of the first names on the team sheet, but he was definitely in the starting 11. It would have been um, him and Skulls. Um, Lampard hadn't quite... Um, got into the team yet, um, still in his early days at um, at Chelsea there. And it would have been Gerrard and Scholes. Obviously, England still hadn't solved that left-sided problem, which 
is really baffling now, obviously, with, you know, tactical advances, maybe just play 4-3-3. Um, he's still got Owen, Owen Hargreaves in there, Nicky Butt would have made the squad as well in the 2002 World Cup. And you could play Beckham in central midfield as well, perhaps. Um, but Stephen Jard was injured at a groin injury in the last game of the season against Ipswich um, in a seemingly nothing match could have probably got through that without him and still qualified for the Champions League but unfortunately he's injured for the World Cup which means Trevor Sinclair get on that plane gets on the plane um, back to England when he's in the standby squad gets to Heathrow flies straight back to Japan where England are based and Trevor Sinclair plays in the middle plays on the left um, yeah and England of course as we know got out in the quarterfinals but by 2004 Stephen Gerrard's firmly in the uh, firmly in the 11th for the squad is fit for the European Championships in 2004 and then you've got the uh, the vaunted midfield two of Lampard and Gerrard can they play together will they play together can England win the Euros um, around this time though in 2004 Stephen Gerrard was at the top of his game Frank Lampard was at the top of his game too but both I'd argue Lampard was a number 10 around this stage. There's no getting around that. Um, Stephen Gerrard was number eight um, in sort of the tactical sense, not the number he wore on the shirt. He did both wore number eight on the shirt for the club, didn't they? But Gerrard was an eight. He's like Man United now, just playing Scott McTominay as a holding midfielder. He's going to get bypassed all the time. For as good as he is, the tactics doesn't suit him at all. And this is what England were like around this time, playing Lampard and Gerrard in a 4-4-2 in the midfield, in the middle. Now you look at it, it's just disastrous. It's like playing Kevin De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva in a 4-4-2 in the middle. You need the Rodri, the Fernandinho. And England had plenty of those players and I do not understand it whatsoever and it always boggles my mind. Owen Hargreaves was there. Michael Carrick was there. He might not have had the experience by 2004, but by 2006, 2010 especially, he was a Champions League winner, a multiple-time Premier League winner for Man United, one of the best sort of um, defensive midfielders that England had. And I think if Michael Carrick was Spanish, um, and perhaps obviously in a different era, because Spain obviously had the best midfield around at this stage, he would be have 100 caps, say if he played in now for Spain, if he'd be one of the first names on the team sheet for Spain. I've got no doubt about that. Um, but obviously England around this time, as I say, plumped for names rather than tactics. But despite that, Gerard had a good tournament in 2004, scored against Switzerland. England obviously go out to Portugal in the penalty shootout. More on that later when we discuss another man from there. From that midfield, 2006 World Cup, I think Stephen Gerrard was probably the best player England had at that tournament. Scored one of the goals of the tournament against Trinidad and Tobago, um, again alongside Lampard in the 4-4-2. Um, a bit more, a bit better on the left-hand side here with Joe Cole, but that was probably more necessitated by um, a certain retirement, which we'll discuss next. Um, it also scored a header against Sweden, but ultimately it's Gerrard and England. Quarterfinals, penalty shootout, Portugal again. We know all that. Stephen Gerrard. Superb from the spot for his for his club, for Liverpool and Lampard as well for Chelsea. Both miss in the quarterfinal penalty shoot, of course. Much added pressure when it's for England, I'm sure. Um, then again, for Liverpool or for, for Chelsea or for United, teams like that in a game where in club football, you don't often get many penalty shootouts, do you really? Um, in the odd cup final, the odd, you know, Champions League is a bit of a stretch, although Liverpool and Chelsea did play in a penalty shootout. I think it was in 2007 in the semi-final, which would have been that 
probably the the closest thing that Gerard had to that to the two major tournaments for England in 2004 and 2006. Now, obviously, Gerard would become vice captain by Euro 2008. England, of course, failed to qualify with with, of course, Lampard and Gerard in that midfield too, and it seems akin to 2018, really. Croatia played straight through England, didn't they? And Luka Modric, a really young Luka Modric as well, um, playing very well, I seem to remember, on that um, on that rainy November night in 2007. England go out, Croatia go through, they reach the quarterfinals, perhaps should have got further, maybe even could have got to the final, but um, we've covered that what if, I think. Um, what if Croatia beat Turkey on penalties? But that's um, that's for for you to go and seek out on our YouTube channel. So now we go on to 2010 World Cup. Probably scored the probably was the highlight of England's time at that World Cup, scoring the goal that nobody saw. If you were watching in HD, I remember that quite vividly. Um, the I think it was Hyundai advert comes on ITV HD. It cuts back quite um, quickly. So, like, you know, it was actually a mistake and Stephen Jarrod celebrating. Clive Tills is going mental. Um, and that was the high point of England's World Cup. One of the best moments of the tournament. Um, played in the 4-4-2 again alongside Frank Lampard. So even despite Sven, McLaren, Capello. Capello, we know, obviously favours a 4-4-2 as well. McLaren, of course, um, does likewise as well. Um, Capello, very, very successful in his 4-4-2, carrying on that lineage Um for AC Milan from Saki to Capello in 94 when they won the Champions League they won the league undefeated uh, one of the greatest seasons by any club team obviously couldn't translate for England here in 2010 obviously England probably didn't have quite the defence that uh, Milan had with to, with Tosotti with Costa Curta Baresi Maldini um, hardly screams um, confidence when England have Ledley King, very injury prone. Ledley King, a fantastic footballer, we have to say, but um, very injury prone. He's injured for this tournament. Rio Ferdinand's injured by Emil Heskis. That's not a great start. And then you you rattle through the names. You get deep into those names. And you've got Michael Dawson. You've got uh, Matty Upson, who does score against Germany. <laughs> but they're not Maldini, um, not Baresi. Um, yeah, <laughs> less said about that tournament, the better. And in Euro 2012, Lampard is injured. So... What happens here? This is obviously after Fabio Capello's gone. Um, we've got Roy Hodgson here and he plays alongside Scott Parker. This suits England more, I believe. Scott Parker is firmly defensively minded here, um, playing some good stuff for it would have been West Ham at the time. Um, Gerard's captain Scott gets a couple of assists. The assist for Julian Lescott for the for the header against France, the opening goal. Um, no goals from Gerard though, but I think he had a good tournament. And again, this was a, a, the a Capello tournament, the World Cup in 2010. That was the official end for the golden generation for me. Euro 2012 was slinking into the, the Hodgson years, which started off quite well, um, but it also saw the end of cut straight through the 2014 World Cup because he's the end of a lot of players' times with England. Obviously, with Euro 2012, you've got um, you got Rio Ferdinand um, not available for selection. Then you, after 2014's World Cup, you've got John Terry, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, all gone. Wayne Rooney would go by the following year. As, so a real um, transitional phase for England under Hodgson. Um, but obviously, aside from playing Wayne Rooney in midfield at Euro 2016, I feel as though England had got a little bit better um, tactically. They ditched the 4-4-2 finally for a 4-2-3-1, which was more prevalent in Europe 
or rather more prevalent in England as um, Europe had rather gone to the 4-3-3. So England were always, it felt like one or two steps behind than it was so here. But with the likes of Daniel Sturridge, Raheem Sterling, Wayne Rooney, Danny Welbeck um, was in his pomp, um, of course, at the time in the 2014 World Cup, the Euros in 2012. But there'd be losses to Italy in both tournaments, which, um, which ended England's time there. Gerard perhaps played one tournament too many. Maybe uh, the 2014 World Cup could have been a time for a for a Ross Barkley to come through because Ross Barkley was getting his um, usual bi-weekly Paul Gascoigne comparisons, um, which may have been tad unfair, but um, Ross Barkley was a confident footballer at the time, playing for Everton, playing some good stuff. Maybe it would have been better to play him, um, play Henderson as well alongside him. would have been a bit better than... What was, yeah, Gerard had the leadership, but England with the youthful squad that they had and have had since, I think that was probably the better way to go. Obviously, it's easy to say that with hindsight, isn't it? Um, but Gerard was culpable for the Luis Suarez goal, which by by the end, obviously, knocks England out um, with the with the loss against Uruguay. Two losses from two games. Played his final game for Costa Rica with England already out. Absolute disaster um, in that tournament, really, let's be honest. And um, England bow out and wouldn't return to sort of any prominence until Jared was working towards being a manager with Rangers in the 2018 World Cup. But the next suggestion, suggested by Formanx One Toffee and Matty Mack, pulse goals, 66 caps, 14 goals. So not as much as um, as Stephen Gerrard and as the next man. Um, but that is because I think for me, pulse goals is three, diff- three midfielders into two double pivot roles or two central midfielder roles doesn't go and Paul Scholes was often the man that would get overlooked of course by by the tournaments in 98, 2000, 2002 which he played the majority of the games in Scholes and there was no Gerard, there was no Lampard um, 2004 of course when both of those are in their peak Scholes less so he was he would um, have a bit of an eye injury after this uh, tournament but he would retire after Euro 2004 but in that in that tournament, he would be the one sacrificed out onto the left because England can't play four three three or four two three one or anything with um, a defensive midfielder or just playing the players in their own positions. Perhaps would have been um, quite a good one. Um, but anyway, Paul Scholes' uh, tournament career for England started with a bang, scoring his first game, his first tournament game for England against Tunisia, scoring an absolute stunner. I remember watching that in um, reception. Um, in the summer there, five years old, absolute screamer, fantastic. Um, would have been on the end of Michael Owen's solo goal against Argentina, but Michael Owen shot before he could get it. I always remember that. Um, Scholes was the man inches away from him <laughs> as, he, as Owen rasps that into the top corner against Argentina. Uh, but obviously, Argentina is where it would end for England at the 98 World Cup. Scholes would be one of the first names on the team sheet for Euro 2000, obviously coming off a fantastic couple of years for United winning the treble. Um, Stephen Manon was on the left. You got Dennis Wise, you got Paul Lynch, you got Paul Scholes in the midfield. Um, by this point, England had firmly gone away, I think, from the three at the back formation, which was used by Venables, by Hoddle to an extent. Here we've got Kevin Keegan um, back to a 4 4 2. Shearer knowing up front, Skulls and Ince, Dennis Wise sometimes on the left as well after McManaman got injured in the first game. Skulls and McManaman both scored in the first game against Portugal. And you think, wow, we're, um, England are doing very well. 2 0 up against Portugal. Scored England's first goal. Did uh, Paul Skulls with an absolutely sublime header? I love that header. I don't know why. Um, it just <laughs> resonates for some reason. 
But obviously that was as good as it got. Luis Figo scores an absolute blockbuster. Don't care if it's a deflection. Um, England lose 3-2. Disaster from start to finish aside from the, of course, the 1-0 win over Germany, which is the only shining light in England's England's tournament. Um, Also, footnote before we move on, uh, could argue that Paul Scholes' hat-trick against Poland was the only reason that England were even there in the first place because by the end of qualification for Euro 2000, England had only had only won three of eight games, that being one of them, and needed favours from Sweden to beat Poland in Stockholm to even qualify, to even get into the playoffs. So scores us three goals against Poland in a 3-1 win or 3-0 win, I think it was 3-1, um, was the difference in the end between England even going to Euro 2000 and watching at home and watching Poland probably arrive on the first plane home like England did but that's by the by so in the 2002 World Cup in England skulls is still in his favoured central midfield spot he's got Hargreaves he's got Nicky Butt behind him there and um, probably in his more, more preferred position but this was around the time of in the late 90s early 2000s or 2000-ish skulls was scoring plenty of goals for England but by this sort of phase when he was in his peak despite scoring loads of goals for United scored 20 goals in the 2002-03 season. He wouldn't be on the score sheet much for England. He was shunted out onto the left occasionally. And even at this point, we've got, um, for one particular game, Argentina, Hargreaves and Butt would play in the middle. Scores would go out on the left, but then Sven would favour more. Trevor Sinclair on the left, Emil Heskey on the left as well, as the tournament went on. Um, so I think he was kind of hampered by this. Obviously, you've then got Stephen McManaman and Darren Anderson not playing for England anymore, so that becomes a left-sided problem now. And um, Scholes was the answer to it, apparently. Um, stuck out on the left with uh, Lampard and Gerrard in Euro 2004, another quarter-final defeat to another Portuguese-speaking nation. It was Brazil in 2002. It was penalties in Portugal, 2004, of course. Um, in Euro 2004, Scholes got his first goal for England for a while, really, um, against Croatia as England qualified for the quarterfinals, but in truth, he played very little part in um, the 2002 tournament and in, in the uh, Euros in 2004 with probably Lampard and Beckham, more influential in 2004, um, and Beckham in 2002 as well. But you've got to say that playing out of position in a left midfield spot for Skulls does not suit him whatsoever, um, especially with Joe Cole sitting on the bench. Didn't get, I don't think he got a minute on the uh, pitch at Euro 2004 may have got a substitute appearance uh, somewhere along the lines but to not have him on the pitch when Paul Scholes is playing left mid and doesn't really suit it whatsoever he's not quick he's, he could probably be a playmaker out wide but you already have that in David Beckham on the right so it doesn't really work Ashley Cole could of course provide width Wayne Bridge of course could provide width it's not beyond England to play both Ashley Cole and Wayne Bridge on the left they did so on a couple of occasions probably um, so he's numerous numerous oh, it still winds me up to this day 17 years on as you can probably tell um, Paul Scholes would retire after that obviously seeing that um, he was being treated more fairly by his club by Alex Ferguson and obviously he would never play for England again after the loss to Portugal, almost returned for the 2010 World Cup. But apparently Fabio Capello's call came in a bit too late for him to to accept it. Um, would it have been fruitful anyway? Capello played a 4-4-2. You wouldn't unseat Gerard and Lampard in the combination in midfield. Capello's not going to stray away from his tactical, tactical formation that he's used in perpetuity. So Scholes would either be sat on the bench probably bored like Michael Carrick 
um, in Rustenburg, I'd be pushed out to the left, where you've got James Milner invariably, or the right, um, which wouldn't have worked. So it, it doesn't really make any sense, does it really? And obviously by by 2011, he's retired. It would come back, of course, for United. But by that point, obviously England's long gone, long in the rearview mirror it is. And um, yeah, again, like Michael Carrick, Paul Scholes, if he was a different nationality, he would have been a centurion for them. Easily have had 100 caps, probably won something with them. But with England, I always feel as though, despite maybe, we'll discuss this later on, but I'm not going to go into it full lengths of it really, maybe one of the, the most talented of the three, who knows? Not up to me. Um, he was the one sacrificed for whichever reason, despite you've got Steven Gerrard who can play on the out wide, which he did do for Liverpool at times. I'm not saying it's his best position either, but Paul Scholes has never played wide of a midfield ever. Um, and England and United played a 4-4-2 all the time at that point. Um, why he'd be the one to play left is anybody's guess. Frank Lampard couldn't play out wide either. 4-4-2 um, is just bad um, for these players anyway. I'm not saying it's bad at all. Um, for finally Frank Lampard, suggested by George Spencer, 106 caps, 29 goals, 29 goals is an insane amount of, an insane tally for England, for a midfielder as well, um, only one shy of Michael Owen, I think, oh, no, 11 shy of Michael Owen, one shy of um, Alan Shearer it would have been, so Frank Lampard, for some reason or another, didn't get selected for the 2002 World Cup, despite Gerrard's injury. First tournament is Euro 2004 scores in his first tournament game, a bit like Paul Scholes in the uh, game against France, and then scores against Croatia, then scores against Portugal, was probably, if Wayne Rooney wasn't there, would have been England's best player at the tournament. Uh, gets that crucial equaliser, as we know, against, against Portugal in the extra time period, and uh, scores in the shootout, unlike in the 2006 World Cup, where Lampard, again, plays every minute, doesn't score, though, gets a... I think he got the man of the match against Paraguay, um, but ultimately missed in the shootout. And like Steven Gerrard again, like um, Steven Gerrard against Portugal, again, another quarterfinal, another famous exit, and a famously, again, England didn't qualify for Euro 2008, as we've covered with Steven Gerrard, really. Um, played in a two, Lampard and Gerrard, the... The argument, even by 2008, was passe. Can, Engl can England function with Lampard and Gerrard in a 4-4-2? As if the players were the problem, not the system. But that's, um, of course, wouldn't change by the 2010 World Cup either. Um, Gerrard and Lampard playing in the two. And even more famously, which would have been his only, or would have been his first World Cup goal against Germany, not given um, in what was another disaster of a tournament, the 4-1 loss to Germany may or may not have changed with that um, goal going over the line. We've covered that all the way back in the archives for the Wife Football YouTube channel. Check that out if you want. Um, and then that was rather his, really his last act in, um, in an England shirt at a major tournament, really. Year of 2012, he's ruled out with a thigh injury. Um, 2014 World Cup didn't play too much a part. He, played in uh, Costa Rica as captain in his final game for his country. Um, maybe a couple of sub-appearances in that World Cup, but by that point, it was Lampard's um, England career was as good as over and um, did score plenty of goals for England. The best amongst the midfield, probably the best midfield scorer for England ever, aside from Bobby Charlton. Um, but it, major tournaments, probably 2004 was his best one. Um, the best one and his first tournament. So we'll do a little bit of a Scholes-Lampard-Gerrard 
club debate, shall we? If you've listened to our Patreon Patreon podcast, the head-to-head podcast, you'll know we do. Uh, we settle it on, well, we don't settle it. We start it on Monday Night Football's point scale um, or a slight um, tweak to that anyway. So five points gets you Ballon d'Or, World Cup or a Champions League four points Premier League or Euros with international tournaments probably worthless in this uh, points uh, points structure uh, three points an FA Cup a Cup Winners Cup or the Europa League two points for the player of the year that being uh, football writers or players PFA and one point for a Club World Cup or a League Cup so you tally them all up you've got skulls on 70 points with um, 11 Premier Leagues, three FA Cups, two League Cups, two Champions Leagues, an Intercontinental Cup and a Club World Cup. Um, potentially only 65 points if you just count the one Champions League, but he did play a part in which to uh, get Man United to the treble in 99, so I'm going to count it. Um, Lampard gets 36 points, three Premier Leagues, four FA Cups, two League Cups, a Champions League, a Europa League and one Football Writers Association Player of the Year. And Gerard, frightening, frighteningly enough, 21 points and the lowest of the three. Two FA Cups, of course, didn't win a league. Three League Cups, one Champions League, one UEFA Cup, one PFA Player of the Year and one Football Writers Player of the Year. Um, does that settle it? Probably not, because uh, Paul Scholes played in an infinitely more successful team than uh, the two lads there. Obviously, Lampard, when Chelsea's money came in, was in the right place at the right time. Gerard could have joined him. Um, which was one of the very first videos we covered on the What If YouTube. A lot of plugging on this show today. And uh, Gerard, unfortunately, the underachieving domestic team that was Liverpool at the time, despite obviously putting his all into that. And I think all three had sort of facets of their game that they were better at than the other three. Lampard was the most prolific of the three consistently as well. Paul Scholes maybe um, scored more goals in certain patches but he could drop back a lot better he was more versatile than the other two Jared was a big moments player the more all round player he could do pretty much everything and as a three that really should have worked shouldn't it just put a Owen Hargreaves in there to balance it out please <laughs> and then you've got a then you've got a, a World Cup winning team um, it seems so simple I know um, probably not the right answer I know that as well but that's just my take a take I'm going to take to the grave with me until I've uh, heard a very good argument against it and of course we can't change the past so we may as well get on to a few more suggestions to round off the show now we've uh, not really settled the Gerard Lampard skulls debate have we but it will never be settled it's like Messi versus Ronaldo it'll never be settled I don't know if I'll ever do that those two debates on the head-to-head podcast on the uh, Patreon page but Maybe, maybe if I'm feeling bold one day. So we go to Paul Gascoigne and Chris Kelly, who suggested Gaza. 57 caps, 10 goals, which um, for me probably has more moments for England than any any other name on this list, really, from the tears of Turin to the, to the dentist chair. Although his England career was marred by injury, especially for the Euros in 92, didn't make the field of play then. Graham Taylor even dropped him at the start of the qualification phase against Ireland for tactical reasons which boggles the mind um, also Gaza had a broken leg which had him out for over a year in the mid 90s might not have helped in the long run but this, the timing of that if you can have a good time for a broken leg when you're a f- professional football it was when England didn't have to qualify for Euro 96 and played friendlies anyway so that might um, 
infer the small amount of caps that Gaza had here, but they obviously got this insane, insane amount of good memories that Gaza brought to England in the early to mid-90s and should obviously be considered alongside the three we've already discussed. Glenn Hoddle is suggested by the Anglo-Italian podcast, 53 caps, 8 goals. He wouldn't get into the starting 11 for Euro 1980 until after elimination played the final game against Spain in that one. Came on for Brian Robson when he was injured in the 1982 World Cup, but then started every game at the 1986 tournament. And unfortunately, really, I don't think he had the same impact as he had at Tottenham. And um, perhaps played maybe second fiddle to Brian Robson. I think both could have worked in the same team. And obviously, as we know, generational players, Brian Robson missed crucial matches in 1986 and 1990s. Tournament, to be fair, both tournaments in which England tactically, or rather Sir Bobby Robson tactically adapted and then changed, most notably in 1990, where they changed to three at the back and then progressed to the semi-finals. Would they have done so with, with Brian Robson in the team? Would they have stayed at four at the back? Would Brian Robson have worked in the three at the back um, in midfield? Um, that's a what-if in it for another for another day. Uh, Brian Robson, of course, has to be included here is one of my suggestions. Um, scored one of the quickest World Cup goals ever. Um, against France in 1982, ending 12 years of no England at a World Cup, and then obviously scores within 30 seconds, which is outstanding, really. Um, Stanley Matthews is suggested by the FT LOL podcast. I'm not really, not really sure if we can count him. He's more of a forward. Unfortunately, we know his prime was cut by the Second World War, um, but he still turned out for England in 1950s World Cup, aged 35, and in 1954 World Cup, aged 39. What an incredible play, but unfortunately for the purpose of this, I don't think we can, um, counting which FTLOL podcast says on Twitter, he's not sure if we can count him yet, he's more of a forward, isn't he? Um, it's one of the greatest England players ever, really. And in terms of most capped players, we've got Ron Flowers, we've got Ray Wilkins, John Barnes, Kevin Keegan, Chris Waddle, David Platt, Trevor Brooking, we can all, we can all get behind them. And one name that... Um, as I'm recording this, it's the 20th anniversary of a certain iconic match, England versus Greece in 2001. And I don't know how, having watched that match, nobody has picked David Beckham, um, a man possessed in that match, carried England over the line in so many matches, the penalty against Argentina, the free kick against Colombia, free kick against Ecuador, all these goals against uh, South American teams. But he was one of the one of the only England players to score in multiple World Cups, scoring three World Cups, which is uh, something nobody's ever done. Um, aside from him, he scored plenty of goals. Was the most one of the most influential players, probably the most influential England player I've seen in my lifetime, anyway. And I've waxed lyrical enough about David Beckham. I think he's one of the most underrated footballers ever, perhaps due to his off-field activities, perhaps due to his celebrity, his star power um, off the pitch. But on the pitch, he was absolutely magnificent. And we're going to go on the flip side of that for the next episode of the Noise Nostalgia podcast, episode 58 next week. We're going to look at your suggestions for forgotten Premier League footballers. Give me your most obscure Premier League footballer ever. Tweet us at whatif underscore YouTube for that one. We'll be back next week. We'll be back on Friday on this podcast feed the sports social podcast network on friday the barclays the start of the 1993-1994 premier league season also patreon also youtube check us out wherever you can but until then silly
Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.